0: Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, How did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts.
1: According to the free speech, anti censorship organization, PEN America, we're living in a period of unprecedented legislative restrictions. On books in America's public schools. Now, their data track more than 2,500 instances of individual book bans, affecting more than 1,600 unique titles. And their data show that the overwhelming majority of banned books address issues of race, racism, and queer identity. But at the same time, many are refusing to simply accept restrictions on learning. Take last Thursday, when hundreds of college and some high school students in Florida walked out of their classrooms to protest Florida Governor Ron DeSantis's announced plans to ban diversity, equity, inclusion, and critical race theory programs from the state's campuses. So, as we on The Takeaway come to the end of February, we're closing out our Black History Month special series, Black History. Queer Rising, by returning to a conversation we had with the author of one of the most frequently banned books in America. All Boys Aren't Blue is a memoir manifesto written by journalist and activist George M. Johnson. Johnson was named one of time's most influential people in 2022. All Boys Aren't Blue is a book for young adults, and it begins with a tough moment.
0: I was five years old when my teeth got kicked out. It was my first trauma.
1: Now that's actor DeLon Burnside reading an excerpt from the film version of All Boys Aren't Blue. But this book is far more than a litany of complaints. It's a beautifully rendered story that is sometimes joyous, sometimes painful, but always honest about growing up black and queer in America today. I sat down with author George M. Johnson back in October to discuss being an official member of the Banned Book Club, right alongside authors like Toni Morrison.
0: It's pretty bittersweet um, to see it all kind of unfold. It's like on one end, uh, when I wrote this story, it was with the intention of ensuring that teens who were like I was uh, a black queer teen who didn't feel like I had an outlet or any resources that I gave them some type of resource guide and and a roadmap of um, many of the things that they potentially will encounter. and then, you know, the other side of it is I'm on a banned book list with Toni Morrison.
1: Hey! Well,
0: <laughs> uh, so, like I said, uh, you know, it, it's it's it, it's bittersweet at times uh, because I know these teens really, really enjoy the book. Uh, the teen readers in 2021 um, from the American Library Association chose it as their number one book. Mm-hmm. So it was like right when the book is uh, at the height of starting to get to the height of the banning uh teens are literally saying but this is the book that we need uh and so like I said it's been a rough uh fight over the last I guess a little bit more than a year now that uh this has all been happening uh but if if anything I'm watching teens be activated to use their voices because of the book and so I think um at the end of the day, we have just created uh, even more gen Z advocates who are you know willing to speak up for themselves uh, and uh, ensure that they have the things and the tools that they uh, deem as necessary for their existence here
1: For our listeners who haven't had an opportunity to read it, who might not have young readers in their lives, walk us through um, this piece. It's a memoir. And it's like think of it almost like a memoir plus, right? It, it's a, it's a memoir. It is your story, but not, it's like your story, but in the universal. Tell us what, um, so tell us a bit about the story.
0: Yeah. You know, I grew up knowing that I was different. Like that, that was my word was like, I'm different. I don't know what this difference is because I don't have language enough yet because I was able to recognize that I was different at the age of five, um, but but again, I, I grew up knowing I was different. And, you know, as I was going through those years, um, I then realized like, oh, like my difference is that I am not heterosexual and that I have affections uh, towards the same sex. Uh, and so my book is really what that journey felt like uh, having to navigate a space where you didn't have visibility and representation. Uh, but I always had the love of my family. And so it it kind of weaves in this this journey of a black family uh, full of love, full of care uh, and full of trying to protect me from a world that uh, rarely ever acknowledges the existence of people like me, um, i.e. black, queer uh, young adults. Um, and I talk about my joys and my pains, uh, the triumphs and, uh, the tragedies that, that all occurred, uh, throughout. My birth from up until the age of 21 is pretty much where I end the book. Uh, But I think the story is one of resilience, uh, and it's one that gives teen readers uh, optimism. Um, As I often say a lot of times with queer characters in books, they die at the end. And I'm like, I I didn't die at the end, and I'm still here. Uh, So that's something that they can hold on to.
1: I love that. When um, A million years ago, when I was taking my very first classes in feminist literature, I um, I had a faculty member that that said when a woman is the lead in a book, the only two choices for the ending are marriage or death. Um, and that, you know, what the work of, of feminist literature was to do was to imagine a different ending. And so I hear um, something similar in your resonance of if the only option for the queer character is to die, to be tragic. And instead, right, you can give us both the trauma um, but also the joy, right? Yeah, Reflect on that in the context of Honey Child.
0: (laughs) Oh, Honey Child. Uh, A word I created when I was about seven years old in the second grade, um, which again is interesting nowadays when we hear queer lingo and uh, A-A-V-E, African-American vernacular English, uh, taking over speech nowadays. Uh, But it was a word that I created that became like my safe space it was what i felt like i felt like um i was one of the girls and uh you know and i I grew up around my my mom who owned a hair salon and so i would hear you know women use the word like chow and honey um and then i had a aunt my aunt crystal whose nickname was honey and just one day i was like i'm gonna put these two words together and that's gonna be like my thing that i say uh, when I'm gossiping at seven years old about <laughs> nothing in the classroom, and I started saying the word, and then other girls in the classroom started saying the word too, and before you knew it, the whole class was using this word uh, in a very sassy way, uh, which was to the disappointment of some parents. Uh, and again, I often think about like I was like, I wonder if I was a little girl and I used the word, with those parents have been upset? Mm-hmm. But I think once those parents found out that it was me who was a, a boy uh, identified at the time who was using the word uh, I think a lot of parents took a lot of issue with it and got back to the teacher who called my mom and told her that I could you know that th- the word was causing a bit of commotion um, in the classroom and you know she just told me I couldn't use it she didn't say why but I could sense why but um, Yeah, it was just one of those things where it was like I was creating my own lingo, um, as I do today when I'm creating words and putting words into the world. Um, But, yeah, I've told that story because I think it's beautiful when we know the origin points of certain things and certain words and how they got into the world. So that was my word.
1: We're going to take a quick break and come right back with more of our conversation with George M. Johnson.
0: On this week's On the Media, one former NPR editor's grievances are reverberating far beyond a substack essay. He claims wokeness is ruining the place. That marginalized people are storming the barricades and dictating that this story happens and this story gets killed and we're going to use this language and not use that language. That's not what I saw.
1: On this week's On the Media from WNYC. Find On the Media wherever you get your podcasts. We're revisiting our conversation with George M. Johnson about their banned book, All Boys Aren't Blue. I I also feel like the like the analysis you just gave us, the look, I I kind of knew, right? They told me I couldn't use it. I kind of sensed it, right? You're a child, but being a child doesn't mean that you're (laughs) incapable of understanding the complexities of the adult world and what is considered acceptable and what's considered unacceptable. And I just keep thinking about the attack on queer kids, on how state governments, right? It just, I just, Governments are deciding to attack young people. Um, and even if they're not physically attacking them, which is also part of what you write about in this book, the legislative attacks, knowing that you're not supposed to be there or on that team or reading that book, what does your story tell us about what that means for these young people?
0: Yeah, you know, it's interesting because it's like a vicious cycle of like how history repeats itself. And so it's like as much as we try to see things as progress, it's like, are we really making progress? Are we really making inroads? And it's like, of course, I can say, yes, I have more than my ancestors did who were um just, just black. And, uh, you know, and of course I have more than my ancestors who were black and queer, who, you know, really realistically had no rights. Um, but at the same time, it's like, uh, where are we going when we can't tell these type of stories? Like when we know that these, these teens exist, these teens have already now started to self identify at a much younger age because we've given them language and tools to be able to do so and we are still saying that we're going to restrict your rights while also still trying to simultaneously say it's not in, it's not because they're LGBTq and it's like then if it's not because they're LGBTq then why are they not allowed to even say it in the state of Florida why are they you know um, why are you telling transgender youth that um, that they shouldn't exist? Why are you um, restricting the, the books that they need so that they know what their existence looks like in this world? But books that are for heterosexual kids that have this same type of content, because I grew up reading those books, uh, are not being restricted. Um, and so, you know, At the end of the day, I'm fortunate that I was able to put this book into the world because it has made progress and it has started a conversation. Uh, And in many ways, it's gotten to the teen readers who didn't know it existed. So, you know, that's, I guess, the other side of when you try to make something forbidden. uh, Mm -hmm. It tends to make more people want to know what's inside of it. (laughs) So, uh, so yeah, like I said, been an interesting journey, but I, but I do still feel like the the text is is making progress and making inroads, and I think it's inspiring others to tell their story. When I was five years old, uh, we were walking home from school, and we got jumped, uh, and I had my teeth kicked out. Um, and that was tough as a five-year-old uh, you know to, to have and, and it's interesting, right? Because it's like five-year-olds lose teeth all the time, naturally. Uh, but there, there was something traumatic about that experience when I lost uh, mine, and then the the buck teeth came in early, and so I'm like this little kid with these big teeth. Um, but I think, you know, when I think about not smiling uh, a lot. Uh, A lot of it had to do with what I was dealing with internally. Um, It wasn't that I didn't have joy and it wasn't that I wasn't happy. It just wasn't connected to, it wasn't connected to the smile, which I think we all think is like the sign of happiness and the sign of joy. I would smile a lot with my mouth closed. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, My uncle often jokes about that. Uh, But I do think that in many ways that was like the one I guess that's like like that trauma that I carried from childhood all the way into adulthood. And that was like the thing that I, I guess the universe wanted me to work through so that people could see it. Because I do smile a lot more now, but I think people see the journey of the smile. And within seeing the journey of the smile, they've seen the journey of my growth as a queer person. And so the two are pretty much simultaneously linked together. And so it's like as I started exploring who I was and started becoming more comfortable with myself, the smile naturally started to come to the forefront of my face as well. Um, and so I think it, it it really tells the journey of, or the story of the smile, uh, which interestingly enough, the original title of the book was Smile, Black Boy Smile. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> because mm-hmm. when I wrote it, I, I, felt, I felt it was coming. Like I felt my smile was finally coming. Um, and yeah, so even though I stopped smiling, I have now, found it. I've, I've found my joy and my happiness to to do so. And um, I think that's the journey of the book. And the book takes you through the journey of the smile in a myriad of uh, ways. This
1: conversation is part of our series, our ongoing series, Black Queer Rising. When I say to you, Black Queer Rising, what does it mean to you?
0: Yeah, when I hear Black Queer Rising, you know, I think two things uh the first i think about you know just the rise in visibility the rise in representation uh the rise in the acknowledgement of our existence and how we are you know in an era now that in many ways i feel is like uh our own harlem renaissance it is our queer renaissance um Because interestingly enough, you know, the Harlem Renaissance, you know, was full of queer people, but they didn't really get to tell the stories of their queerness. Mm. And so a hundred years later, we're telling the story now and we get to exist as the queer people publicly. And so that's part of that rise that has always existed. And then I think of the uh, boiling water kind of boiling over, I think. There is a rise in our rage and a rise in our anger, and I think we've had enough. And so when I think about uh, Black Queer Rising, I think it is that rage against a society that has tried to suppress us for so long, and we have decided to not uh, just simmer anymore. I think we are boiling over and knocking over the lids and uh, doing it in a very bold and unapologetic way.
1: George M. Johnson, author of All Boys Aren't Blue and We Aren't Broken. Thank you for joining The Takeaway.
0: Thank you for having me.